Hey friends, welcome to RUF. Um, if you've been with us, we're doing Sermon on the Mount this semester, and tonight we're looking at Jesus and our enemies. And so I'm going to read it for us. It's in your handout. We're looking at Matthew 5, uh, verse 43 to 48. Here's what Jesus has for us tonight. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let me pray for us, and we're going to kind of jump into thinking about what does it look like for us to love our enemies tonight. Let's pray first. Our Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that by your spirit, your word is a lamp to our feet. Your word cuts through into our hearts to expose, on the one hand, our sin, but on the other hand, Lord, your word is the place where we know what you're like, that you really are the God, the only God we've ever heard of that loves sinners, that came, Lord Jesus, to give your life for us that we might be saved. So Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you, as we're in Holy Week this week, Um, for the love we're going to consider tonight that you have for your enemies, which was once us. And we thank you, Lord, as we look to Good Friday tomorrow, of the love that you have shown us on the cross. Lord, that you really did come uh, to die the death that we deserve to die, um, that we might know new life and know the forgiveness of our sins. So, Lord, I pray that as we consider your words to us tonight, that you would move in us by your spirit in ways that are healing, in ways that are challenging, in the ways we need to be challenged, that you might lead us to the grace of repentance where we need to repent, and that you might make us your people. We are your people. But Lord, would you make us more like you? And would you, would you use tonight to that end? We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen. All right, so I don't, I, this is a little bit weird about me, but I, I like to follow uh, pop culture, and uh, that's the only podcast I listen to. It's called Who Weekly, and it's entirely about all kinds of obscure pop culture. But you might remember, you might not, 2015, there was a, a huge rap beef between Drake and Meek Mill. Uh, the kind of thing where Meek Mill really came after Drake for not writing his own songs, uh, for hiring ghostwriters, which apparently is fairly true. Drake clapped back really hard, if you remember this, with just two diss tracks that were just crushing. I mean, like, everyone, that was a, you know, if you're on Twitter at this time, just dunking, dunk after dunk after dunk on Meek Mill. But then this beautiful thing happened. 2018, Drake's doing a concert in Boston, and lo and behold, in the middle of the set, he brings out Meek Mill. Meek performs one of his songs, and then they end up, like, showing the world that they're okay now. They end up playing, like, ping pong after, and, like, just reconciling, basically. And it was a moment on both ends of thinking, like, we live in a culture where beef is easy. Um, We live in a culture where dunking on people is easy. We live in a culture where it's easy to really hate your enemies. 
And, and that little moment in 2018 between Drake and Meek Mill, not even in a Christian way, was a moment, just a little glimpse of hope that Jesus is talking about here. What does it look like to love our enemies? What does it look like for us to be people who love our enemies? And this is two points we're going to do tonight, pretty simple. Uh, the first is to be a Christian is to have enemies. And the second is to be a Christian means uh, you're, you're someone who loves your enemies. That's what we're doing tonight. So first, to be a Christian is to have enemies. Look at verse 44. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus, bottom line, he's saying there is going to be hostility. There is going to be conflict as you seek to live a life of faithful love to Jesus. There just will be. And this is because the way I'm, I want to go a little bit big picture in point one, and then we'll get a little bit more uh, smaller picture or more on the ground in point two. But to even think about this idea of what does it mean that we have enemies, we have to think about what historic Christian teaching is about our mega enemies first from which all our enemies flow. This is going to sound maybe a little bit weird, but historic Christian teaching says as a Christian, our kind of mega, I don't have another word for this, mega enemies, think like Godzilla, King Kong, like the big ones systemically that scripture talks about are threefold. Here's the first, it's the world. We are at enmity with the world. In other words, we live in a world, much of which does not know Jesus, and more than that, whether it knows it or not, actually is hostile to God and hostile to the claims of Jesus upon their lives. Jesus says, this is what's interesting, he says to these devoutly religious listeners here, he says, you love the people who are useful to you, but you hate anyone who is either personally or politically or theologically your enemies. And don't the Gentiles, doesn't the world do the same? And the reality of what Jesus is leaning into is that even for us, part of our struggle is though we are Christians, if you know Jesus and his love for you, it's still easy to be far more shaped by the world and the way you live and think and do. Um, it's easy to be the kind of Christian whose thinking and living is shaped much more by the world than by the Lord Jesus. And because of that, part of what I'm trying to lean into tonight is when we talk about enemies, part of what happens for us is even in our midst, even brothers and sisters in Christ can feel like and become enemies because when it comes to relationship and the way we do life, we're shaped too much by the world. Uh, here's an example of this for, that I was following yesterday. So Tim Keller, you know, if you've been on RUF, we're big Tim Keller fans. He had this tweet that was pretty straightforward, just biblical sexual ethic, where he just said this on Twitter. He said, sexual love, if, not, if it's not expressed in an exclusive, lifelong covenant relationship, is dehumanizing. And that was the tweet. That was it. Send tweet. And man, he, <laughs> they came for him. Like people who would claim Christianity came for him and said, how dare you have such a repressive view of sexuality? Uh, certainly, people, you know, certainly people who are not Christians are like, this is the problem. This is why we don't like you Christians. And so it was an example for me to kind of learn and watch. Here's, here's this pastor who is just really putting forward hard but biblical truth. But because the world is at such enmity with it, they came for him. And that's often how it is with our enemies. So first, the world... Second, the flesh. Uh, that means we, we, by birth, are sinners. We know this. Our natural fallen impulse is to seek revenge or at least to be passive-aggressive and rejoice when our enemies are canceled. Part of what happens in conflict, part of what happens with enemies, so to speak, is we respond from a place of the flesh, which is the opposite of those of us who are in Christ being, responding 
and walking with the Spirit. So this is what Jesus is saying to us. He's saying that you, us, in our flesh, we want love to be this easy, selfish thing that requires no sacrifice, no forgiveness, no hard work of seeking justice while also extending mercy. And Jesus is saying, essentially, when we do that, we're living purely in the flesh and we're living as enemies of God. And part of this is what happens for us even as Christians is it's so easy to, to go with the flesh, even though the Spirit indwells us and, and reminds us of the truth and invites us to walk bearing fruit patiently that is honoring to God. But so much of what happens in conflict especially is the way that we think about one another is less Spirit-filled and much more fleshly. How dare they? How dare they say that to me? How dare they do that to me? Uh, two examples of this. One, one a personal, one not personal. Uh, so Alyssa, if you know my wife at all, she grew up a huge Carolina fan. And so I'll never forget, we had started dating, so it been about 2001 or two. And I took her, I grew up a Clemson fan. Some of y'all know this about me and, and hate that about me. And it's okay, I can bear that burden. Um, but we were going to her, our first together USC Clemson game at Clemson. She'd never been to Clemson in her life. And uh, man, when I say she hated it, I can't even describe to you how much she hated. She, you know, she calls it this just cow pasture of a campus that smells the moment you drive in. So we go to this game, Clemson wins. We're walking out and this pretty drunk Clemson fan just like comes up toward us and just starts being extremely noxious, obnoxious in Alyssa's face. I don't know what to do as a boyfriend. I'm not, you know, I'm like, this is an awkward moment. But Alyssa had to like grab her by the purse because she was like about to take a swing at this fan. And it was a, a moment of, you know, of what we know, like fleshly conflict. Then on the other hand, think about, you know, the story of Ruby Bridges. Ruby Bridges uh, was the first little you know, six-year-old black girl who was, you know, moving in in the, in the moment of integration in the Deep South. And you know that story. She showed up for months. I didn't realize this until today. Months. Day in, day out, she's showing up to the school. She's got marshals taking her to protect her. If you've ever seen the videos or pictures, you can see these crowds of white folks who are just so enraged by what's happening, and they're yelling things at her. This little girl, they're yelling, screaming things at her, throwing things often at her. And you know the story she was meeting with the time with this, this child psychologist, and at one point he asked her, Ruby, when they were screaming these awful things at you, when they were just screaming their pure hatred of you, what were you thinking to yourself? And she said, every day I had a simple prayer. And that prayer was this, please God forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. This is beautiful. You can, we can put it like this, the crowd is in their flesh and their racism screaming at this little girl and this little girl is in the spirit saying, God forgive them for they know not what they do. It's a little picture. We're going to get to this in point two of what it looks like to love people who hate you. And then the third thing that we don't ever talk about, it feels like in our circles, is the devil, the world, the flesh, and the devil. These are the great enemies from which all of our enemies, all of our conflict flows. The devil, we don't talk enough about him, and yet Jesus certainly does, and the New Testament certainly does. Um, it always reminds me, if you've ever read Lewis's Screwtape Letters, he's got this genius little line in the beginning where he's talking about this. He's talking about this idea that we don't often talk about spiritual warfare or Satan himself. And he says this, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence 
and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Here's the way that Paul says it in Ephesians 2. He says about us. He says, you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. When you think about the work of Satan in your own life, certainly the work of Satan in the world is simply this, to keep us in the dark about the power and the love of Jesus. That's his mission. And to tempt and entangle Christians to distract and pull them away from a life of love to Jesus. This is why it's one of my favorite short stories of all time. You've heard me say this before. It's Leo Tolstoy. It's a little short story called The Devil. The premise is really simple. It's this well-to-do Russian man who lives in this really wealthy farm. And he's married. He's got some kids. But he starts lusting after this servant on the farm. And so the way it unfolds, you could guess, he ends up in this affair with the servant. And day after day, he's, he's tempted by her. You know, they're tempted together and sort of you know, go off in this affair. And the way the story builds is he gets to this place of, of influence where he's decided the only way out is to either kill the mistress or kill himself. And it's, it's interesting. Tolstoy wrote two different endings, one in which he takes a gun and kills the mistress, and the other in which he takes the gun and he kills himself. But what's fascinating why it's such a powerful short story is it's called The Devil, but the devil is never once mentioned in the story. And that's often how it is when we think about our enemies, so much of the way we respond to those who have hurt us, to those who have been mean to us, to those who seem to either hate us or hate what we're about. So often it's the subtle influence of the world, the flesh, and the devil that makes our conflict so hard, that makes it so hard when Jesus says this crazy thing, don't hate your enemies, love them. Move toward them in healing, love, and forgiveness. And it also affects the way that we respond to it, dealing with all three of those things. That's the second thing I want you to see. So first, to be a Christian is to have enemies. We just need to name that. But then second, and this is more the point, to be a Christian is to be someone who loves your enemies. To be a Christian is to be someone who loves those who hurt you. To be a Christian is to be someone who loves those who hate you. Um, And this is where it gets wild and hard. They wanted Jesus to say what we wanted Jesus to say. Yeah, yeah. Love the people who love you and agree with you and think like you and act like you and screw everyone else who doesn't. Let them get theirs. That's what we want in our flesh. Let them get theirs. But he says and says, no, we're not just going to love our neighbors We're not just going to love our brothers and sisters. We're going to love our enemies too. The ones who have hurt us deeply, who hate us, who mean us harm. We're going to love them so well, they might end up becoming our friends and brothers and sisters. And so the way that I want to think about it, what Jesus, I think, gives to us in the name of that, how do we become those who love our enemies? How do we become those who love and forgive and move toward, and we'll talk about the nuances of that, those who have deeply wounded and hurt us, what will it take for us to be real Christians who don't just love our friends and those who are helpful to us, but love those who are hard for us, love those who are even our enemies? And it's going to take three things. Here's the first. You have to realize and remember that you were once an enemy. 
You were born into this world an enemy of God. That's why Paul says in Romans, while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. Do you remember what it felt like before you were a Christian? I know that some of you have a testimony where you say beautifully, I can't remember a day where I didn't know the Lord. That's amazing. But for those of us who can remember what it was like to not love Jesus. This is what I was thinking about today. I don't think I've shared this in a long time, but. So when I was in seventh, eighth grade, you know my story a little bit where dad had left, mom was trying to pick up the pieces. And my mom really wanted me to meet. I grew up in an Anglican church and she really wanted me to meet with our pastor, rector. And to be honest, I didn't like this guy. Like he was the guy we'd play basketball and he would like start to competitively block me, a 13 year old out. And I was like, no, I'm not, I'm not down with someone who's hyper competitive with a 13 year old as a grown man. So, but I go, I have to do it. I'm 13. My mom makes me go. I'm in his office. And I'll never forget this moment where he is sharing with me the gruesome details of the cross. So he kind of leads with, pretty boldly, do you know how, what death by crucifixion is like? And then I'm not kidding, probably for the next 30 minutes, he's just in detail saying, here's what Jesus experienced on the cross. Like, here's the pain of it. Here's what it was like when he died on the cross. Here's how he died. And I can remember thinking, so? Who cares? You know, it wasn't that I didn't believe it. It was I didn't see its relevance to my life. And in this way, it's like I didn't fully realize that I was. If you'd asked me, are you an enemy of the cross? I would have been like, what does that mean? And the reality is that's where I was. And so sometimes the best way we begin to love our enemies, our friends, or maybe our friends who feel like enemies right now, is for the cross of Jesus to become so big to us that we literally begin to think to ourselves, if God could love me, a sinner like that, and do that for me and give himself for me while I was so stuck up in myself, maybe, just maybe, by his spirit, by his grace, I can begin to love those who hurt me, who are hard for me, who I just don't like, or who have really wounded me. So first, remember what it was like to be an enemy. But then second, and this is more the point of, of Jesus, what he's saying, two things. One is, or the second and third thing, realize that God loves his enemies. That's why Peter writes in 2 Peter 3, he bears patiently with you, his desire being that no one should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In other words, we have to see the heart of the Father. We have to see the heart of God that says, those who hate him, his heart isn't revenge. It isn't petty payback. It isn't to be coldly passive-aggressive. It's one of deep and profound and yearning love. That's why Jesus gives that example where he says, he makes the sun to rise and the rain to fall on the good and the evil, on the just and the unjust. The Father cares even for those who hate him, who hate him with their lives, who literally hate him with their words, and yet the heart of God is moving in love and in grace and in goodness toward them. My grandmother, so she was part of my conversion story. My grandmother on my dad's side, she was the most gentle woman I've ever known. Um, she was the one where we'd go to her house and she'd have like a pantry full of mellow yellows and cheese whiz and saltine crackers. And it was amazing. Um, but uh, when she died, I got my dad gave me her little prayer book. Uh, she was an Anglican as well. And. And she had been in the church a long time. 
And I just, you know, wanted to see what was her life. Like she had written in the margins of this little prayer book. And one of the things that was so beautiful to me is she had underlined and circled as like a 16-year-old my favorite hymn. And it was a hymn by this guy, Frederick Faber, called There's a Wideness in God's Mercy. And I was revisiting it today. Here's how it goes. There's a wideness in God's mercy like the wideness of the sea. There's a kindness in God's justice which is more than liberty. There is welcome for the sinner and more graces for the good. There is mercy with the Savior. There is healing in his blood. And here's the line that killed me. But we make God's love too narrow by false limits of our own. We make God's love too narrow by false limits of our own. And we magnify its strictness with a zeal God will not own. Then the third thing, if we're ever going to become those who love our enemies, we have to realize that God, he loves his enemies. Why? Because he has compassion for them. They are made in his image. And he loves them. He has compassion for them. So it's Holy Week. If you know anything about Holy Week, today is Maundy Thursday. And Maundy Thursday literally comes from the Latin of to command. And it's from the the night before Jesus goes to the cross where he's in the upper room with his disciples. And Maundy means to command. And it's drawing from Jesus' command to love one another as he has loved us. And if you want a picture of what it looks like to love your enemy, there's no better night. There's no better place in Scripture to look. Because what is Jesus doing the night before he's about to die? This is the way I was thinking about it. What if I, if I knew, if the Lord, by an angel or by a spirit, came to me tonight and said, Sammy, tomorrow you die. What do you want to do tonight? Like, I know what I would want to do, right? Like, I would want to go to my favorite restaurant with my favorite people, eat my favorite food, drink my favorite drinks, and just have a good time knowing that my death is coming tomorrow. And I never thought about it like this, but what does Jesus do knowing he's going to die tomorrow, the night before he dies? He kneels to wash the feet of his friends. And more importantly, he kneels to wash the feet of Judas, his enemy. Literally, the man who, for just a little bit of money, is going to hand him over to the authorities. And Jesus says, Judas, I love you. Let me wash your feet. Jesus knows. I mean, you know, if you know that story, the exchange gets real awkward at dinner where Jesus says to Judas, Judas, do what you're about to do. You're under the influence of Satan. And that moment is where Judas leaves. And then he comes back with the authorities. But before this, Jesus, the last night of his life, is kneeling to wash the feet of his enemy, Judas. Why? Because he has compassion for Judas. He knows what's in his heart, his purely selfish motives, his lack of love for anyone but himself. And there is Jesus, and he stoops, and he kneels, and he washes Judas' feet in love. This is how I was thinking about it. Jesus is saying to Judas, you only love yourself. I wish that you could see that. But I love you, and I wish that you could see that more. This is what Jesus, when he says that hard word about be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Most commentators think he's talking about perfect love. The way that John calls it perfect love that casts out fear. Perfect love, which means we don't just love those who are useful to us. We don't just love those who are nice to us. We don't just love those who are friends to us. We love like God loves, which is those who are hard for us. Those who hate us, those who have hurt us. That's perfect love. That's the love that Jesus is calling us to. I'll close with this. 
I don't know if you followed at all the story of Rachel Denhollander. She was, uh, if you remember, she was a, a gymnast uh, at Michigan State under Larry Nasser, who ended up being just this monster of a person, abused hundreds upon hundreds of teenage girls just at his hands. He was the coach. And if you know Rachel's story, he, he abused her. And so there was this moment where finally these victims had come forward. They had shared their testimonies. He's, this guy's going away forever, thankfully. And if you've ever seen the courtroom scene where Rachel gives her speech before Larry Nassar, so Larry Nassar sitting in the courtroom, this man who has, with great evil, abused her, abused, again, hundreds of little girls and young women. And here's what she says to him. I mean, she says a lot. She said, you know, she says so much, but there was this moment toward the end where she says this. She says, she looks him in the face and says, Larry, should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found and it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. And in that moment, Rachel is loving her enemy. And she is, with her words, kneeling and washing his feet with the offer of the grace of God that is greater than all of our sin, even the sins that make us go to jail forever, as they should. So the question as we kind of close is, when you think about what it looks like for you to love your enemy, here's the way I want to say it to you. Who needs your compassion right now, even though they've hurt you? Who, who needs your prayers right now, even though they might literally feel like you're a true enemy? Who needs your forgiveness? Though they might not even want it. And maybe they think they have nothing wrong. Who needs your mercy? Even if they never see how they've hurt you. It doesn't mean that loving your enemy means you'll be best friends again. It doesn't mean that loving your enemy means there's always this beautiful reconciliation. It's not what it means. Sometimes there's not. But it does mean in your spirit, in your heart, Before the Lord, you were trying to love them as Jesus has loved you. And that's what this love does. It enables us to love those who even hate us and hurt us and are against us. So let's pray to that end. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for Holy Week. We thank you that Easter and our hope of resurrection is is on the horizon. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that while we were once your enemies, you... Lord Jesus came and died for us. Lord, we thank you that good news, the good news of the gospel indeed is true. But Lord, would you show shape, so shape our hearts by it that we could even be, begin to be those who love our enemies. Lord, it, it's, a, it would, it's a miracle. It's a spirit-wrought miracle of the gospel, and yet, Lord, we are in desperate need of it. So, Lord, would you meet us in these ways? Would you walk with us, continue to walk with us in our stories and in these hard conflicts and places that we all know something about? We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen. I invite you to stand with us and sing our doxology.